The Black Lives Matter agenda is literally leading to thousands of black people getting killed in our country. I'm gonna break down the statistics that prove this to be the case. Plus, former President Obama goes to bat for HR1, SB1, that is the For the People Act. But the Democrats' backup plan, because of course they know the For the People Act is going to fail, their backup plan, HR4, is just as bad. Don't fall for it. And who is stupid enough to believe Hunter Biden's paintings, yeah, now he claims he's an artist, are worth half a million dollars? Maybe the same people who think it's fair that Laurel Hubbard, who was born a man, now identifies as a woman, will be competing in the Women's Olympic Games in Tokyo. I'm Liz Wheeler, welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Raise your hand if you think that when criminals commit crimes, it's the fault of the police that the crimes are being committed. Of course you don't think that because you are not an idiot. Now let's talk about the dumbest thing that I have ever heard. Literally the dumbest thing that I have ever heard. This is a former Obama administration official blaming the increases of crime that we're seeing in cities across our country, not on criminals, not on democratic policies, not on defunding the police, She's blaming the increase of crime on police itself. Listen. Tomorrow is primary day for New York's mayoral race. Crime is the number one issue among Democrats. Those are the people voting. What does that say about the defund the police movement? Do people know what it means? Do they know what it is? Do they know what they want? So, Stephanie, I think it's important to begin with the simple fact that all of us, and I do mean all of us, want safer communities. Everyone wants and deserves Mm -hmm. to be able to walk out of their home, walk freely on the street, play with their child and ensure that everyone is safe while doing so. But what we also know to be true is that defunding the police is not just about taking money out of an institution that continues to prove ineffective. It's also about refunding the people. It's about ensuring that the services that people need to ensure safe communities from the ground up are actually being funded and resourced to their full capacity. I think that there are a lot of police unions and GOP operatives that would like for us to believe that this recent crime wave has everything to do with this idea of defunding the police. But guess what, Stephanie? The police haven't been defunded. You actually look at the 50 largest cities law enforcement spending as a share of the general expenditure in each of those cities actually rose slightly from 13.6% to 13.7%. And many of the cities that have talked about removing that money, like Minneapolis and Seattle, they've actually paused or slowed how they were thinking about moving that money. So this rising crime is not the fault of the movement. It's actually the fault of the police. And this has been our point all along. Why should we keep funding systems and institutions that keep rendering themselves ineffective? We should be talking about gun control, livable wages, fair housing, education. That's where we should be moving the money to, to ensure truly safe streets. So this woman's name, she works, by the way, for MSNBC now. Her name is Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Um, She's formerly a part of the Obama administration. Get this, she was on Obama's task force on 21st century policing and the Ferguson Commission. So you can imagine that all of her opinions are basically this stupid. In fact, her opinions are factually incorrect, and this is what I want to debunk today. The Bloomberg report that she cites actually says that these cities that she was discussing, quote, reduced their 2021 police budgets by 5.2% in aggregate. So she's not telling the entire story here. 
She's pretending. She's talking in percentage, not aggregate, right? So truthfully, the police in these areas are operating with a lower amount of funding than they were the year before. That's obviously dangerous because when there's not as much police, they can't police crime. By the way, it's also worth mentioning, this is one of the defining narratives of the Democratic Party right now. The Black Lives Matter narrative, the defund the police narrative, they have lost some support because their peaceful protests were not peaceful protests, they were violent riots. But let's just get some numbers out there. This is an unpopular narrative. This policy position is an unpopular narrative among the American people. A USA Today poll, this was released in March of this year, showed that, quote, only 18% of respondents supported the movement known as defund the police. 58% said they opposed it. That's a pretty significant disparity. 18% of people do not support defund the police. Well, I wonder why. Cities across the country, in fact, are refunding police after the obvious happened. You defund police and crime increases. Duh. That does not take a rocket science to know that that's going to happen. But this woman, Cunningham, she wants socialist-style redistribution of wealth. She actually, and when I say this, this, this is a really serious thing to understand here. She pretends that this is about the safety and security of the community. She says everybody wants crime to go down. Everyone wants secure inner cities. Well, sure, but she clearly isn't putting that into action. Because if she did, she wouldn't be advocating for defunding the police. No, her actual primary agenda item here is she wants socialist-style redistribution of wealth. In fact, this is critical race theory in action. You can watch it unfold. So the Black Lives Matter movement uses racial minorities as the vanguard to undermine social institutions in America, like law enforcement, criminal justice system, even our laws to tear down these institutions so that they that the institutions themselves don't stand as an impediment to the Marxist revolution. Black Lives Matter is actually a perfect example of critical race theory in action. And this woman is a perfect example of someone purporting a narrative that proves that the Black Lives Matter movement is perpetuating critical race theory. The truth, however, is that the Black Lives Matter movement's agenda not only hurts people because there's an increase of crime, it actually directly leads to the death of black people in our country. The Black Lives Matter movement's agenda is killing black people. Because what is the Black Lives Matter movement's agenda in practicality? Well, defunding the police. That's what we're just talking about, defunding the police. When police are defunded, even if it's just partially, as this woman claims, there are fewer arrests. There are fewer stops made. There's less policing that happens. So Daniel Horowitz at The Blaze did an incredible breakdown of the statistics that show the direct correlation between defunding police and an increase in black homicide victims in our country. This is the basis for my claim that the Black Lives Matter movement agenda leads to the death of black people. So we're gonna read through this. Horowitz says, a black individual is more likely to be struck by lightning than killed by a policeman. Now, this is important because, and this this is my commentary on on Horowitz's writing. This is important, of course, because the Black Lives Matter movement narrative uh, essentially pretends that black people are indiscriminately killed by police on a daily basis just for the crime of being black, driving while being black, walking while being black. You might be shot by the police. However, this is Horowitz. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 2018, there were 6.5 million police interactions with black people. That's one in 300,000 to one in 500,000. That's the chance of being killed by a cop if you're a black person. That is similar to your chance of being struck by lightning. He also points out, and this is a good point to point out, quote, if you don't run from or fight with the police, their chance of death is essentially zero. 
He goes on to say, according to the CDC, the black homicide rate was 12.9 times higher than the white homicide rate from 2010 to 2015. And homicide was the leading cause of death for black people under the age of 35. Horowitz then says, crime expert Sean Kennedy of the Maryland Public Policy Institute estimates there were at least 4,000 excess homicides last year. Last year meaning 2020. Kennedy goes on to say, preliminary statistics show murders rose by 35% across 60 of the nation's largest cities. Nationwide FBI data through September show a 21% jump in homicide and an 8.3% increase in aggravated assaults, including those by gun. Aggravated assaults and shootings climbed by roughly 10% over the summer and fall of 2020. So 55% of homicide victims whose race was known were black. This is according to the FBI. Horowitz says that means that the Black Lives Matter agenda caused at least 2,200 excess homicides last year. 116 times more than the number of unarmed black people shot by police. How astounding is that? Just in case you believe people like Obama official Brittany Cunningham blaming police for the increase in crime. No, no, that is not true. Horowitz goes on to say, according to a new research report from the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, police stops and arrests indeed declined on average 48% in 10 major cities from June 2020 to February 2021, relative to the previous nine-month period from 2019 to 2020. The results, murders rose 56% in those cities. For example, in Minneapolis, arrests were down 42%, while murders rose 64%. Full stop. So what this means is the Black Lives Matter agenda, the false narrative, the policy platform to defund the police results in fewer police stops, fewer arrests, that increases, that leads to violent crime and homicides going skyrocketing, which leads to an enormous excess in deaths via homicide for the black community, black victims, black lives. The Black Lives Matter movement is literally leading to the death of black Americans. Is that the fault of the police? Obviously not. Don't believe the Marxist trope for a second. Okay, so the For the People Act. It should be called For the Democrats Act because it is nothing more than a federal power grab of elections intended to secure Democrats winning elections for the foreseeable future. Fortunately, this is most likely to die in the Senate because there are two senators, Sinema and Manchin, who are unwilling to get rid of the filibuster and zero Republicans support the For the People Act. But this is not where this battle ends. This is not even close to where this battle ends because Democrats have a backup plan for when this bill ends. They know it will end. The backup plan is called HR4, and it should be called Pelosi's power grab because it is still a bad and very destructive bill. Before we get to the details of that bill, let's just remember that the For the People Act is not about election integrity. In fact, it is a strategy for a federal takeover of elections so that the Democrats win. And AOC, unintentionally perhaps, accidental honesty we'll call it, admitted this. Take a listen. Before I let you go, I want to ask about uh, the Supreme Court. There poised to hear several blockbuster cases in the next term, voting rights, gun control, abortion. Uh, Your fellow Democrat, Mondaire Jones, says 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer should retire so that President Biden and Senate Democrats can fill his seat with a younger liberal successor. Do you think that Justice Breyer should step down after this term? Well, you know, I believe um, I believe Representative Jones has a point, and we have had very difficult experiences with 
making, I believe, the opposite mistake. And um, especially if Senate Democrats are not going to pass reforms on H.R. 1, we cannot rely solely on on a wish of winning elections, um, particularly in the Senate, uh, when voting rights are under attack in Georgia, Arizona, um, and, and Texas, across the country. And if we're not going to pass H.R. 1 with the preemptive clauses that can roll some of that uh, voter suppression attacks back, yeah, I believe that we should protect our Supreme Court, and I thought that should absolutely be a consideration. So the context of that video is important. I wanted to show you the full context. I'm not going to selectively clip what AOC said. She was talking about the Supreme Court, yet... While she was talking about Supreme Court justice uh, wanting to replace Breyer, she accidentally admitted that the For the People Act, the purpose of that was to secure the elections for Democrats. Without it, she said, we need the Supreme Court. Well, this is not about election integrity then. If without it, you need the Supreme Court to win elections. It's not about integrity. It's a strategy for a federal takeover of elections. Essentially, it's rigging the elections for all the foreseeable future. So just remember, H.R. 1 or SB 1, For the People Act, this is a recap of what's in this bill, the dangers of this bill. It mandates for states, it takes power away from states and mandates that states allow same-day voter registration. It mandates early voting. It automatically registers all individuals in federal databases, not just citizens, non-citizens as well, all individuals. It mandates online voter registration. It automatically registers 16 and 17-year-olds without voter ID. It allows precincts to count ballots outside of their precinct. It mandates states allow no-fault absentee voting. It bans witness signature or notary requirements for absentee ballots. It mandates that states accept absentee ballots 10 days after the election if it's postmarked by election day. It requires all states to allow vote harvesting. It restricts states from cleaning up their voter registration rolls. It, across the board, bans voter ID laws even though the majority of states have them. It forces states to allow felons to vote, which is unconstitutional, to take that power away from states. It forces state legislatures to relinquish power to draw congressional districts to independent commissions, not only unaccountable to voters, also unconstitutional, since the Constitution gives that power to the states. It reduces the number of FEC commissioners from six to five, obviously allowing a partisan president to pack that commission. It allows the IRS to investigate political and policy positions of nonprofit organizations before granting tax-exempt status, as if the IRS doesn't already have a history of corruption in that area. It prohibits lawsuits against the bill itself. The bill prohibits lawsuits against H.R. 1, except in the D.C. Circuit, and requires plaintiffs to join together. This is the most destructive bill Perhaps that's why it's called H.R. 1 or SB 1, because the Democrats know this is the foundation for their takeover of our elections. This is how they secure power for themselves, by taking it away from the states, taking it away from the people, causing our votes to be at risk, vulnerable to fraud, let alone mismanagement. This is why, this, this bill is also a strategy to get rid of the filibuster. That's why It's SB1 and HR1. It's a strategy to get rid of the filibuster, which the Democrats desperately need, they desperately want, so that they can ram through a radical leftist agenda, whether it's Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, high taxes, abortion for all paid for by the taxpayer, or these horrible election-destroying, democracy-destroying bills. They know what they're doing. They know how important this is. 
It's the foundation of their strategy. In fact, it's so important to Democrats that they called President Obama, former President Obama, off the sidelines to endorse this bill. He says, and I quote, we can't wait until the next election because if we have the same kinds of shenanigans that brought about January 6th, if we have that for a couple more election cycles, we're going to have a real problem in terms of our democracy long-term. Since I left office, he said, I've tried to make a policy not to weigh in on the day-to-day scrum in Washington, but what's happening this week is more than just a partisan bill coming up or not coming up to a vote. He knows. He knows how utterly important this bill is to the Democrats' strategy, a federal takeover of elections. But people, the American people, are not fooled. Most people, according to a recent poll, don't know what's in this bill or what it does. Only 29% of voters know what's in Senate Bill 1. And the poll asked them, well, here's what's in the bill. Now what do you think of it? When voters find out what is in the bill, only 28% support its passing. The Democrats are calling in the big guns because they know the American people don't want it. Just like the American people don't want the rest of their policies, which is why, by the way, they have to pass or they have to try to pass a bill like this because they can't get public opinion on the side of their very radical leftist policies. Thank goodness for Cinema, Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin. They oppose the filibuster and they oppose this bill. However, Democrats probably knew this was going to happen. They're not stupid. They have a backup plan called HR4. It's called the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. They're pretending that this is a compromise bill. Absolutely not. This bill, HR4, takes the power over elections away from the states, just like the For the People Act, and gives it to the federal government, just like For the People Act. They do this through a provision called preclearance. Preclearance. This gives the federal government the authority, essentially, to veto any or all or part of state election laws. The federal government, because of preclearance, could then declare null voter ID laws, cleaning up voter registration rolls, any laws that would limit or ban ballot harvesting, which obviously is a ridiculous and dangerous practice vulnerable to fraud, instead of states having the right to regulate their own elections, it gives it to an agency of the federal government, the Department of Justice, would have the power to veto changes as small as polling place locations, in addition to voter ID, registration, and the Department of Justice, an unaccountable bureaucratic nightmare of the federal government would have the power to draw the boundary lines to redistrict in every single state. And states would basically not be able to defend themselves if they were the subject of litigation under these bills. This is something uniquely evil about these bills is that they reduce people's ability to petition the government for a redress of grievances, a constitutional right. Now, H.R. 4... The Democrats claim the purpose of H.R. 4 is to prevent racial discrimination. But it actually does the opposite. It makes race one of the primary factors in the process of our elections, whether we're talking about voter ID or just the interests of the Democratic Party. Something to remember when we're talking about voting, when we're talking about our democracy, when we're talking about election integrity. In 2021, more people are eligible and able to vote in our country than any other time in our nation's history. If you are a citizen over the age of 18 who has not been convicted of a felony, you are eligible to vote. 
It is easy to vote. It is not burdensome to vote. And you are encouraged to participate in our voting process. There is no systemic racism or sexism or ableism or land ownership requirements or monetary benchmarks or religious tests or anything else that would prevent you from voting. We must secure our elections against fraud. We must secure the integrity of each individual's vote. And to do that, we don't give the states power to run their own elections to the federal government. No, we need voter ID laws. We need to ban ballot harvesting. We need to clean up voter registration rules. We need to regulate mail-in voting so that it's not without restriction in order to protect your vote and my vote. And here's the thing. The majority of the American people agree. They agree with you. They agree with me. The majority of the American people do not agree with the Democrats. That's why the Democrats are trying to ram this through. Okay, this next story is quite a story. It's actually unbelievable what the Democrats get away with in this day and age without the mainstream media emitting a peep at the abject and open corruption of the left. What I'm talking about, of course, is Hunter Biden. Did you know that Hunter Biden is an artist? That he paints things? Well, of course you didn't know that. Nobody knew that. Hunter probably didn't even know that until recently. However, Hunter Biden's artwork, his paintings, are going for sale, and they will reportedly sell from anywhere between $75,000 to half a million dollars. Half a million dollars Coke Boy is selling his paintings for. How on earth did this happen? Like I said, this, this dude is not an artist. If he's not an artist and his paintings are up for sale for half a million dollars and it's realistic that they might sell, what does this tell us? Of course, this is unethical. This is a vulnerability to pay to play. Or to put it in other words, how is this fundamentally different from Bill Clinton's exorbitantly priced speeches that he gave to foreign entities while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State? Obviously, Hunter Biden is selling his paintings And who is going to be interested in an original Hunter Biden? Nobody in their right mind, unless, oh, oh, unless they want access to one Mr. President Joe Biden. Even President Obama's former director of the Office of Government Ethics, the guy's name is Walter Schaub, said that this is outrageous. He said, I think it's ridiculous that Hunter Biden is even going forward with a sale as a first-time artist. He can't possibly think anyone is paying him based on the quality of the art. This smells like an attempt to cash in on a family connection to the White House. At a minimum, the president should be asking his son not to go through with this auction. So think about it this way. The Trump children had to stop and step away from their pre-existing businesses. They were successful business people. Yet when Donald Trump became president, They pledged publicly not to secure any new deals at the Trump Organization in order to appear that there was no conflict of interest in their business dealings. So it wouldn't appear that they were selling any access to their dad or that someone was attempting to purchase access to the President of the United States. That standard was for the Trumps. This standard, way down here, is for Hunter Biden. Here's my question. Who is buying Hunter Biden's artwork? This is not a rhetorical, who on earth would do something so stupid? This is a literal, practical question. Who exactly is buying Hunter Biden's artwork? What if it's a foreign entity? It probably is. Which foreign entity? What do they want? What happens if someone buys that piece of art and then asks for a meeting with Joe Biden? What happens if it comes out later 
that someone met with Joe Biden or any member of the administration, really, and it comes out later that that person had purchased one of Hunter Biden's paintings. This is crazy corrupt. It's actually dangerous to our nation. And by the way, there's a loophole in our corruption laws that allow the children of a U.S. politician to be paid even by a foreign government entity, but that doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean that you and I as the voters shouldn't hold politicians and the families of politicians accountable for this behavior. It's crazy, crazy corrupt. And I don't know about you, but when I think of Hunter Biden, artwork by Hunter Biden, all I can imagine is him finger painting or something. I mean, this guy is not an artist. He knows what he's doing. People buying this artwork are obviously just going to be doing so to get access to the Biden administration. This is the definition of corruption. But the mainstream media, by the way, not a peep. They don't care. Hunter Biden's probably a good guy. He's just trying to make a buck selling his paintings. No corruption here. Look away then. Okay, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you might know him from Hamilton. He apologizes for casting minorities in his new musical, his movie, these minorities who the woke crowd claims don't have dark enough skin. Now, that sentence is almost hard to say because it sounds so disgusting. The movie musical that Miranda produced is called In the Heights, and it's essentially under fire. The the accusation against it is insufficient representation in the cast. Now, you might be saying, well, is the movie about minorities but played by all white people? No. This is an all-minority cast, a black and Latino cast. But to the woke crowd, because nothing is good enough, that's no longer sufficient. So this, this was actually brought up by a reporter at The Root. His name is Felice Leon, who questioned the director of the movie and said, it would be remiss of me not to mention that most of your principal actors were light-skinned or white-passing Latinx people. So with that, what are your thoughts on the lack of black Latinx people represented in the film? So let's pause right there. And let's remember that actual Latino people don't like to be referred to as Latinx. Polls show that that is a leftist, white, wokester phrase. That's nothing that minority communities like. So in fact, it's insulting of this person to call Latinos who prefer to be called Latino Latinx. And now let's get back to the cast of this film. Lin-Manuel Miranda casts an all-minority cast, Afro-Latino. But their skin tone, according to the left, isn't dark enough. So what is this? This is racialism. This is grotesque. This should be rejected, out of hand, an elementary rejection of judging someone by the color of their skin, saying they aren't good enough because of the amount of melanin in their skin. How are we back to a point in our country where this is acceptable? All Lin-Manuel Miranda would have had to do is say, this is racialism, it's grotesque. These individuals, yes, they are black or Latino, they are qualified, good actors, good performers, and they earned, based on the content of their work, they earned these roles. But he didn't do that. Miranda apologized. He caved to the radical leftist mob. He said he'd do better next time. Now it's not only about race to the left. It's about if you're the right kind of representation of that race. 
You might be black, but do you look the right kind of black? You might be Latino, but is your skin the right shade of Latino? This is racialism and it needs to be rejected. The left will eat their own because it's never good enough. Lin-Manuel Miranda should never have apologized. So the Olympic Games are this summer in Tokyo and an individual, a transgender individual, that means born biological male, transitioned to female, I believe four years ago, this individual is called Laurel Hubbard, has gotten an Olympic berth, meaning a place on the weightlifting team, on the women's weightlifting team for the country of New Zealand. This is a male who will be competing in the Olympics in the female competition. It's not just New Zealand. Here in the United States, a BMX rider called Chelsea Wolf is going to serve as an alternate on the women's team despite being born biologically male. This is not a complicated issue. It is an issue of fairness, and it boils down to this. Actual women who were qualified, who worked hard, practiced, sacrificed, were deprived of their earned opportunity in the Olympic Games because men took their spot. The year 1900 marked the beginning of women's Olympic sports. I believe 22 women competed that year in Paris in the Olympic Games. 121 years later, 2021, marks the end of women's sports in the Olympics. How long until the medal podiums in women's Olympic sports are entirely dominated by men pretending to be women, claiming to identify as women, though they have male bodies? This is unfair. It doesn't make you transphobic, by the way, to say that this is unfair. No one wants to deprive rights equal rights to transgender individuals. In fact, we're lucky to live in a country in the United States where adults are free to call themselves by whatever name they want, dress however they want, associate with whomever they want, love whoever they want, live with whoever I want, choose their lifestyle, whether we agree with it morally or not. We're lucky that they have the freedom to do that. They're neither prosecuted nor persecuted. They have equal rights under the law. But that is a separate issue from the reality of gender. The reality of gender is that men and women are different. Every elementary school kid who plays sports knows that boys are faster and bigger and stronger, typically, compared to women. That's the reality of the thing. It is grossly unfair. After all the progress that we have made in our country, advocating for the rights of women and opportunities for women and women's sports to allow biological men to take their place in the Olympic games. This will just be a matter of time until women stop trying. No woman is going to try to compete with biological men. It's a losing battle. So the best of the best won't even put their effort in. The medal podiums will be dominated by biological men and biological women in women's sports will become obsolete. Women across the board, this is not even a political issue. Whether you're Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, speak up for women athletes, or else women's sports will no longer be a thing. There's an additional political aspect to this. The BMX biker Chelsea Wolf has stated that the goal of being in the Olympics for this person is to burn the American flag on the medal podium. This is a tweet from Chelsea Wolf. Quote, my goal is to win the Olympics so I can burn a U.S. flag on the podium, just so, just so everyone knows the context of this. I wasn't misquoting. I wasn't inferring. This was something Wolf wrote on Facebook in March of 2020. So not only are you taking over a spot of a woman, you're trying to make women obsolete, you also 
hate our country. I don't think it's a controversial opinion to say, if you don't want to represent our country, please be my guest, get off that podium and let a woman who has earned her spot take her rightful place. Be my guest. Walk right down. Don't represent our country. This is abjectly unfair. Okay, now we have a little update on the sweet, ugly George controversy. Our delightful post-production manager, Victoria, adopted a very ugly little beast. She claims that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and she, believe it or not, calls him handsome, which uh, makes us question her judgment. However, we posted a poll on my locals, on the Liz Wheeler Show Locals community to ask your opinion. Do you think that sweet, ugly George is sweet George or ugly George? And your responses made me laugh all day long, especially then this, I think, is the strongest argument that George is ugly George. A priest who is a part of our community said that George it has a face that only a mother can love. Well, if a priest spoke, I guess I guess God has spoken and sweet, ugly George will forever be known as ugly George. If you'd like to weigh in and see these photos for yourself, please join us at uh, lizwheelershow.locals. Please weigh in. Okay, the great and powerful Jay Hay, our producer says, that's all the free content that you get for today. But we do have a very interesting story for locals VIP. So uh, go ahead, head over there. We'll give you about 10 seconds to change your computer browser because this is a story you don't want to miss. Not only did Dr. Fauci, while he was at the NIH, at the NIAID, not only did he fund Peter Daszak at EcoHealth Alliance. If you want to see the rest of this segment, hear everything that we're going to talk about, head on over to Locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. See you there. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Hit that subscribe button, download our episodes, give us a five-star review, a glowing rating, please. Nothing about weed. A glowing rating, and we'll be back tomorrow. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of Photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Stephen Reyes. Assistant Editor, Michael Wall. Assistant Editor, Tommy Weber. Sound Mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-Production Manager, Victoria Metzel. Director of Marketing, Emily Washler. Senior Publicist, Patricia Jackson. And Production Assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.